Hey everybody, it's Dan. Welcome or welcome back to the Bridge Church Podcast. Please, at the end of this episode, take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and head over to bridgechurchutah.com and have access to all of the church information and it's the easiest way to share content with a friend and keep up with everything going on around here at Bridge Church. Most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Hello! Welcome everybody to The Mid. Uh, specifically, this is the session Diving Deep with me. So to give you guys, the <laughs> is my face up there? Yes, it is. Oh, that's disappointing. All right. <laughs> well, welcome to Diving Deep, everybody. So this is the mid-session that I do. For those of you that didn't know why I'm sitting here and all that. Anyway, <laughs> so to give you guys the thesis of exactly how this session works, because this session of the mid is going to be a little different than how mid sessions are normally, all right? So the one with this is, for those of you who don't know, I spent a significant amount of time at Oral Roberts University, and my major was theology. And while we were there, I learned a lot of deep things about, like, beliefs, about the Bible, and things like that. And... For a long time, I didn't have a way to teach and express these beliefs. That's why I like ran a podcast trying to get that out. I try to do that in conversation, but you just you don't get that time. You know what I mean? So that's what this is for. Is we're gonna sit down and dive deep into the Bible, of course. <laughs> yeah, but diving deep is not meant to be viewed in isolation, because diving deep is meant to work with our pre-existing group, the gathering. So basically, I'm here to teach you guys deep things for diving deep, and then at the gathering, we're gonna discuss them and help you to workshop them and work them into your life, all right? Amen. Everybody on board? Everybody all right? Nobody got hurt? <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah, the gathering will be this Friday at Half Point Coffee in West Jordan at seven. That's, that's a joke because my dad always gets on me for saying it's in South Jordan, but it's in West. <laughs> but anyway, for like I had said, this week we're talking about end times. And I got to tell you guys, like I had said a couple minutes ago, uh, this topic I've avoided like the plague for the longest time. Because the end times is one of the most hard to talk about concepts in the world. Because for one, it's extraordinarily well-tread. You'll find theologians across the world that have opinions. Uh, it's extraordinarily complicated. And... <laughs> uh, Actually, I think an image would do really good for this one. Tanisha, do we got that first image? Oh. It's a lot like that. And it's not the truck. <laughs> <laughs> it's a giant ball of yarn that no matter how much you try to twist, there's always more. And the worst thing about it is it's all the same color, meaning you don't know where one part starts and another part ends. <laughs> so it's a bit of a complicated mess to sort of stir through. But we're going to hope to diagnose it as much as we can during Diving Deep. And again, this is only going to be the first session of the end times, all right? We're going to keep going with this until either God says stop or we finally feel like we've had enough. <laughs> yeah, until Jesus returns. That's exactly right. So everybody go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Revelation. Uh, we're not going to read anything out of it just yet because there's some quick stuff I want to go over before we jump in. But basically, just turn your Bibles to Revelation, bookmark it, and then set your Bible down because we're going to talk about a lot of other stuff first, all right? So naturally, when talking about Revelation, there's a lot of opinions, there's a lot of things about it, right? A lot of people have a lot to think about. So I want to give everyone a real quick disclaimer, all right? Because yeah. the point of diving deep is not to challenge your beliefs. 
It's not to get in your face and say, hey, everything you've ever heard over your entire life is wrong. That's not the goal. That's not the goal here. I'm sorry, y'all. <laughs> That's not our goal here. Our goal is to have you re-examine beliefs you've held for an extraordinarily long period of time. So if you learn something in Bible college that you haven't taken a second look at for 10 years, maybe we can get you to take a second look at it. And you know, if you still hold to that, cool. At least we got you to look again. You know what I mean? So the goal of this is to basically just bring up and make stronger your beliefs, all right? So I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. I'm not trying to tell you your entire belief system is collapsing or anything like that. The goal of this is to make us all stronger together. Amen? Amen. All right. So that being said, basically all the stuff when you first open your Bible and you come to Revelation, all this like, uh, like uh, author, background, date, occasion of purpose, all that, that is what we're going to be talking about tonight. <laughs> and if we're lucky, we might get to the actual text. But... Basically, we're going to talk about Revelation as a book in the canon, okay? We're going to look at Revelation like structurally first, and then if we get time and if the sessions go on, we'll dive into the text and fully like break it down and look at it scripture for scripture, all right? All right. So the first thing we got to talk about is what is Revelation's purpose inside of the Bible? Now, I kind of blew the answer a minute ago, but Revelation basically functions as the end of not just the Bible, but also of history. It describes the end times, go figure, right? But how many of you know that Revelation isn't the only book that does that? Mm -hmm. There are plenty of other books that do that, especially in the Old Testament. A couple of them are the book of Daniel. I just did a study of Daniel not too long ago, and I got to tell you guys, I was surprised when I got to the apocalyptic part. I was like, what? When did this get here? And then there's Ezekiel. That's another big book that has a lot of it. And then surprisingly, in my study, I looked it up, and the book of Joel also has some apocalyptic elements. And then the book of Zechariah is another one. And actually, we're going to be coming back to the book of Zechariah a little bit later. Because if you believe it, the book of Zechariah is actually referenced by Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but not in John. Interesting. Very specific. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. And then in Isaiah, chapters 24 through 27, and then as well as in chapter 33, all right? So that's all the Old Testament. But we do have apocalyptic material in the New Testament as well. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Now that, that one's pretty infamous. We'll talk about that one probably a couple of times as the series goes on. And then in Luke chapter 21, also has apocalyptic elements, and Matthew chapter 24. And then Revelation, pretty much the whole thing. is talking about apocalyptic material, all right? All right, everybody, everybody good? Everybody on board? <laughs> all right. Okay. So a big thing about it is, well, actually, let me say this. So the word for revelation that's used basically means an unveiling or a revealing. It is the English version of Latin revaltio, and then that is a Latin translation of a Greek word, which is apocalypsis, spelled with a K for anyone who's curious, because the Greek alphabet doesn't have a C. But anyway, an apocalypse is the revealing or unveiling of something, all right? So that's where Revelation gets its name from, is the vision of it, okay? So with that being said, we're going to look at the first three verses of the entire book of Revelation, all right? So Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, I think that's right, right, Tanisha, I'm, I'm in board? Okay, good. <laughs> I gave this out to you a very particular plan, I want to stick to it, all right? So we're going to read all these verses through first, all right? So we're starting verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. 
And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Now notice that the he there is not capitalized. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. All right, we're not going to talk about prophecy right now. That is significantly more dense of a topic than we have time for. But basically, I wanted to look at those three verses because in a lot of studying of Revelation, which by the way, it is Revelation, singular. It's not Revelations. I got to say that. Dr. Foster would want me to say that. One of my professors would literally like get in a vocal like screaming match with you if you said it wrong. So it's Revelation, singular, not Revelations. There's only one. And the reason it's only one is because who's getting the revelation? Let me read that through again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, capital H, to show his servants. John isn't getting the revelation. God the Father is giving it to Jesus, and then Jesus is showing it to John. So if anybody says this is the revelation of John the Beloved, that's wrong. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ given to John the Beloved. All right? So that's pretty important because if it is multiple revelations shown to Jesus, that means Jesus' understanding is limited. And that'll mess with your Christology, which that's a big word. Let me explain that. That's your image of Jesus, basically. If Jesus doesn't fully understand something or needs to be shown something in parts, that means he's limited. And if he's limited, he can't bear the whole weight of sin. It's that simple. All right. So God the Father showed this vision to Jesus, and Jesus is pivoting and showing it to John. All right. Everybody following? Everybody good? All right. So now that we have established that this is a vision, that it's prophetic, and that we got other things going on, we need to talk about what revelation is, what it functions as. Because Revelation fits into a very specific group, and that is called eschatological theology. Now, that's a really big word, so let me explain it. Eschatological theology is basically end times, how the world's going to end, how Christianity views the world ending. Daniel is, is part of eschatological theology, Ezekiel, all those other books that I mentioned. All right? And they have very specific characteristics, ways to be able to pick them out of a crowd very easily, ways that these books stand out even in the larger canon of the Bible, okay? And some of these are the use of symbolism. So if anybody ever tells you that Revelation is 100% literal, you got to be careful with that mentality because Revelation exists in a genre that is known for how symbolic it is, all right? Now, I'm not saying the whole thing is symbolic. We'll talk about that in a minute but there are pieces of it that are deliberately intended to be symbolic, all right? And then the use of visions. Daniel, its apocalyptic session begins with Daniel in the desert receiving a vision. Ezekiel receives a vision. Isaiah receives a vision. Again, apocalypses or revelations, revelation is delivered through visions. Now, why is that? Because humans can't see the full picture. Jesus can see the full picture, and that's why he has to be the one to give it to John. But humans need visions in order to see 
the end times, okay? Everybody following? All right. And then the mention of angelic mediators, okay? So basically, angels are usually the ones who go to humans and say, hey, God wants to show you something, come with me. All right? That's a hallmark of apocalyptic literature, is that an angel comes down and says, yo, I need you, and then pulls you, all right? And then bizarre images. If anybody has read Revelation and thinks that it makes 100% of the sense, 100% of the time, they're lying. Creature with eyes all over. Ugh. And then the expectation of divine judgment. Pretty much every single apocalyptic anything in the Bible is written with the premise that God is unhappy and he is going to execute on that unhappiness. Now again, if that is all you see in an apocalyptic book, you're missing the point. Because judgment is a lot easier for the human mind to understand. It's a lot easier to say, I did something wrong, I'm being punished for it. That's a lot easier to understand. But the Bible says that mercy triumphs over judgment. But mankind struggles to understand judgment. As a, as a very wise friend of mine said one time, humans are idiots. They understand the simple, they don't understand the complex. Yeah, that person's in this room, so I can say that. <laughs> And then finally, the emphasis on the kingdom of God. The apocalypse is saying, this kingdom is now coming to exercise authority. It's a messenger being sent by that kingdom to say, this kingdom is come. And what does Jesus say when he is here? Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? And then finally, the new heavens and the new earth. All right? It really contrasts these two things. It contrasts heaven and earth as it's supposed to be and heaven and earth as it is. And then it's saying these two elements are going to be coming together. All right? Daniel says that. Ezekiel says that. Revelation says that. Amen? All right. So with all that being said, now that we have talked about Revelation, identified what genre it fits into, we are now going to pivot to who wrote it. Actually, I'm just now remembering, I gotta give another disclaimer real quick, okay? Tanisha, you can go ahead and put the next one up. So this is a book that I was given in a class that I read about Revelation. Now in this particular class, we discussed a lot of the prophecies in Revelation, and my professor had us read this book for a very specific reason. Because he had said, this is what happens when people think they understand Revelation. So I'm not here to say, if you've got a prophet that you love that says, oh, this is what this means in Revelation, this prophecy is referring to this in the modern day, that's great. You believe that? That's awesome. Keep believing that. But I want to encourage you guys, and one commentary that I was talking about specifically mentioned that because of all these prophecies over hundreds of years that people have had, has really clouded a lot of the interpretation of Revelation. So I'm going to ask you guys to please strip that away for a second. Look at Revelation purely objectively on what the words are saying alone, not what the modern day interpretation of that would be, okay? Kind of like what I was saying during worship, don't try to decode it, just let it speak for itself. You'll get a lot more out of Revelation if you do, okay? All right, so now moving on to the next image. Who wrote Revelation? I'm hearing a lot of people say John, so, yes. John, the son of Zebedee, the beloved disciple 
wrote Revelation. Okay? Now, there is some debate on this. Okay? A lot, some people will say that the writer of Revelation is not John the son of Zebedee, the beloved disciple. And I feel the need, if we're going to talk about Revelation, to give you guys this information and to explain why this debate is happening and what the sides of it are. All right? So, the biggest reason that people say that John the Beloved did not write Revelation is because the Greek in it is phenomenally bad. Now, if you look at the Gospel of John and you look at the Epistles of John, their Greek is immaculate. It's second only to Luke's in the entire Bible. It looks super, super good. And Revelation is written in the worst Greek almost in the entire Bible. Now, that is phenomenal. Now, why is that? There are a couple of different reasons. The reasons that defenders say that that is, is because, for one, John was exiled to an island where he probably didn't have a great scribe. Number two, you're seeing creatures with eyes all over their bodies. You're not going to exactly be in the clearest of minds afterwards. So it's believed that John was a little erratic when he was speaking it. Right? So that is a couple of different explanations for that. And the second one is early church history. So just so you guys know, in the study of theology, what people behind you and over the last thousand years have said is monumentally important. Not necessarily because they said it, but because they thought it through and said, okay, I'm going to pass this on to the next generation. Tradition in Christianity is monumentally important, but it's never meant to bind you. Because if you let what people said in the past form everything about your Christianity today, you're, you're never going to find your way out. That's why we have a Holy Spirit to help us live our lives in the best way possible. Amen? All right. But this guy named Eusebius, who was a church historian in the third century, all right? Now, this is after Christianity has been accepted as the religion of the Roman Empire and after history books about it are allowed to be printed. Okay? So this guy wrote in his first church history book that goes all the way to the first century, he has two lists of the disciples of Jesus and of the apostles. Now, these lists do not have anyone that overlaps, except that the name John is listed in both. And it is John the Beloved in one, and John the Elder in the other. Now, people have said elder. Now, if you've been in church any period of time, you know that elder is a church office. Therefore, this John had the office of elder that would have been so far beneath the beloved disciple, it can't possibly refer to him. All right? One quick issue with that, though, is that this is the third century when the office of elder did exist. It, it's in a form very similar to how it is today. Right? First century, when John the Beloved was alive and functioning in the church, it was not. It may have been a title that could have been ascribed to people, but it was nowhere near an office to function in. Just like how in Acts it describes the establishing of the deacons, these guys were not called deacons. It's not like a traditional church today where it says, oh, Deacon Allen or oh, Deacon Coates or something like that. It was nothing like that. The church of the first century didn't have those offices. Not as formulaic as they were in later centuries. Like once you get to the third century, once you move to the patristic and then to the Catholic period, the office becomes much more official, much more fancy, much more you got to have a whole ceremony for them. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. That was not the case in the first century. 
Therefore, what many historians are saying about this particular instance is that this list is a list of the disciples of Jesus as they existed in that period, and this is the list of those who are serving in those positions today. Therefore, John the Beloved is still alive at that point, and is still alive at that particular point. Okay? And he is called John the Elder because he was the last one to die and was old. I'm not joking. Legit. The guy lived to be around 90 to 100. And actually, if you can believe it, his bones are still around. Or we think they are. <laughs> Long story. Anyway, but basically, Revelation, we can say with good, like 90% certainty, was written by John the Beloved. Because while it doesn't, while the Greek is bad, John, just like Paul, just like Peter, just like anybody who wrote a book in the Bible, has buzzwords. So basically, you know how you like have a favorite preacher or whatever, right? And they have certain doctrines, certain words that they go, oh, 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 that they say all the time. You know what I mean? <laughs> There's one, yeah. But these, each of these guys have specific words. So as scholars, we can look for those words and determine who wrote them. And Revelation has about 95% of John's buzzwords. Light, blood, life. Abide. All these words are in the gospel, in the epistles, and in Revelation. So either John wrote them, or somebody who knew John's language like the back of their hand wrote it. All right? So we can say with fairly good certainty that John the Beloved wrote it. All right? And while Eusebius disagrees, every single one of his contemporaries does think that John wrote it. So we do have a very long tradition of people believing that the Beloved Disciple wrote Revelation. All right? Everybody tracking? Everybody following? All right. Now, before I move on just yet, let's go ahead and address this image right here. So who was Revelation initially written to? It addresses, here in this book, the seven churches of Asia. All right? Now, the reason the churches are established in their order, some people believe that that's because that's like how the church will be over certain phases of its life. Whereas if you look at this image here, that's not the case. Because you see that one little speck there off the side of Ephesus right there? To the left there? That's Patmos. So basically, the very first city John, that Revelation written as a letter to the churches of Asia could have gone was Ephesus. That was the first spot it could have made. And then Roman roads go in this exact formation to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to, La to Philadelphia, and then to Laodicea. And then these churches formed the backbone of Christianity in Greece at the time. So John sent revelation to these guys. They could copy it and then send it out. Okay. All right? Everybody tracking? Tanisha, go ahead and go to the next image. Now, this is an artist's rendering around the 13th century of John as he's receiving the revelation. You can see he's there. He has a book, but books didn't exist back in those days. And he's seeing the courtroom of God, or the temple of God, excuse me. It's a nice picture. I wanted to include it. Yeah. And then 
For those who may hear and say, oh, you know, Revelation or the Bible, we don't have good sources of it. You can't trust it, blah, 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 blah. Revelation, actually, we have one of the earliest known manuscripts currently existing of it. And this is in Papyrus, this is Papyrus 47. It's currently on display in Dublin at this exact moment. I did check. And just so you guys know, this dates back to the third century. That's how old it is. I don't have an image of it, but that's... We have a text of Revelation that has written Greek parts of Revelation from the third century, and it was found in Egypt in 1935, I believe. And just so you guys know, that was found in Egypt. Where did Revelation first appear? Tanisha, can you go back to the next image? It appeared in Greece. And anybody who knows their... <laughs> I almost said geometry. Geography <laughs> knows that Egypt is not close to Ephesus. It's not close to Greece. So what does that mean? That means that the document was well circulated enough to have been copied, to have been walked to Egypt, and then buried. Now, if you know anything about the first, second, third century, that's not a quick process. Mm -hmm. So that means that we have at least 100, 150 years of revelation existing before being buried in the third century and then being found today. So if anybody says we don't have any, doc any like, text of the Bible dating back to the time it was written, we do. And then we'll address this now. When was Revelation written? Now, if you look in your Bibles, especially if you have the Spirit-Filled Life Bible, like us here at the church like to use, you'll see that it gives a date. It says, at least in this copy that I have, which might be old, AD 70 to 95. That's a 25-year span. That's a long time, isn't it? Now, the thing about it is, that is an average, because we have two possible dates for when Revelation could have possibly been written. And so your Bible averages out and says, okay, we'll start at the beginning of the first one and end at the last of the last one. Now, I'm here to tell you guys that I can narrow it down to five years on one side and five years on the other side. Get it? Narrowed way down. And that is because there is one singular event that Revelation is written around and is either telling a prophecy of the judgment coming or is taking that and saying, see this? It's going to get so much worse. <laughs> All right? And that is around one single event. And I believe that's the next image, hopefully. Yes, it is. So that is the siege of Jerusalem. So for anybody who ever wonders why we only have one wall of a temple nowadays, this is why. So basically, after Jesus died and Christianity started to spread around, Rome and the Jews had a bit of a falling out, so to speak. So basically, ever since Rome started expanding and growing big, it started to butt up against uh, Judea, which is where the Jews have always been, you know, having a good time over there. Now, the Jews have always been a thorn in the side of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire never liked having to be there. They never liked having to deal with the Jews. It was always a pain in the butt to deal with them. But eventually, through constant warfare, the Jews were like, tell you what, we'll, we'll let you stay here, but we're not worshiping your gods. That's not going to happen. And after 50 years of war, Rome was like, fine, whatever. Just let, us, just let us conquer you, and we'll be happy. So that was the agreement that they settled to, was that Judea, the Jews, would have a unique offer from Rome to not have to worship the emperor. Now, this is something that was extended to the Jews alone, not anyone else. So when Christianity first emerged, 
which by the way, we do have documentation of an execution record of a man who was called the Christ in Judea in the first century. So we do have that. We do have that documentation. But anyway, moving on from that, when Christianity first got on the scene, the Roman authorities at the time assumed it was just a new like, denomination of Judaism. When they figured out that it wasn't, there was a problem. Because if you're deciding you are a new religion, that means there are two things you have to do. Number one, you have to worship the emperor as a minor deity, and you have to pay taxes according to your religion. Now, Christianity had said, we will not do the second, and we'll do the first, sort of. Or no, wait, we won't do the first, we'll do the second one, sort of. Excuse me. Because, just like the Jews, Christianity says we will worship no god except our own. And Romans said, we'll intimidate him a little bit. We kill a couple people. That didn't work, needless to say. <laughs> and eventually Christianity waited him out long enough that for people trying to gain power in Rome, it was more advantageous to take the side of the Christians and support them with the government of the time to get into power than it was to try to oppose them. That's what Constantine did. That's how he ended up as emperor of the Roman Empire in the third century. We'll talk about that some other time. But anyway, getting back to what we initially had said, Revelation has two periods of writings. And this is in AD 65 to 70, is the front half. First couple of years, that's possible. And then the second is AD 85 to 90. So like the first five years and the last five years. Now the reason we can tell this is the case is because of who was Roman Empire at the time of its writing. Because there are very specific references in Revelation to emperor worship, to antichrists, and to other figures. Now, these guys can be identified as some people or as other people. Again, I read a great quote when researching this that said, with Revelation, it's not a question of orthodoxy. It's not a question of if it's right. It's a question of interpretation, what you say is what. All right? So the first date I want to give you, the guy who was Roman emperor at the time is this lovely individual. So for those of you who don't know who that is, that is the Roman emperor Nero. Yeah, not a fun guy. So to give you guys a little bit of boring Roman history, Nero was the last of the Julio-Claudian dynasty of the Roman Empire. Basically, he's the last of Julius Caesar's line to be emperor of Rome. Now, just so everybody knows, he was 16 years old when he became emperor. How many of you think you could have ruled a world-spanning empire at 16 years old? <laughs> More people than I should have should have raised their hand. <laughs> That's not good. That's not good at all. I'm just going to pretend I didn't see it. <laughs> anyway, so Nero was a little off his rocker, needless to say. Uh, we have a rumor of while Ro Rome had this big fire, like a couple of years into his reign, that Rome had like this terrible fire that burnt down almost half the city or whatever, right? Rumor has it, he sat on his villa overlooking Rome and played the harp while it happened. Now again, that's a rumor. We don't have any evidence corroborating that. So take that with a grain of salt. But this does show that Nero was a little off his rocker. Now, Nero is known for his persecution of Christians, but he is not the worst to ever do it. But it's believed that if Revelation was written 65 to 70 AD when he was ruling, that the Kaiser or Antichrist that they're talking about is Nero. That is one possible interpretation. All right? Now, 
Part of the reason for this is because emperor worship was pretty high in Nero's tenure. It's second only to the other guy we're going to talk about here in a minute. But basically, Nero had this god complex that he thought he was like the coolest guy around. Right? Now, Rome culturally was in a bit of a, was on the up and up. It wasn't as depraved and bad and sad as it is for the next guy. All right? So, if it was written during Nero's time, the Babylon that is mentioned in Revelation does not refer to Rome. It refers to Jerusalem. Because Christianity, and in the early phases of its life, after the disciples had died and the next generation was coming up, the next generation didn't understand that Jesus and the first of his followers were Jews that were enlightened and had received the fulfillment of God. They believed that they were Jews who learned that Jesus was the way and abandoned the false way. To Christians coming up after the disciples, the Jews were the enemies who had killed Jesus. Therefore, some people interpret Revelation to be condemning the Jews for everything horrible they did to God and how all the judgment is coming against Jerusalem and the siege of their temple in AD 70 was Revelation being fulfilled upon them. Now again, this is not the way. Like I say at Gathering all the time, there is no right answer. That is a interpretation of Revelation. One that we'll get into a little bit later, but that is one possible understanding of it. All right? And how in Revelation it says how the Antichrist uh, dies by, well, dies by a wound in his head, right? Everybody knows that? Nero committed suicide by stabbing himself in the throat. So, it is believed that that is what that is in reference to. And it was commonly believed by the people at the time that Nero didn't actually kill himself, but he attempted and then ran away to a neighboring kingdom, was going to muster an army, and was going to try to attack Rome and kill a bunch of Christians. Again, this is a interpretation of Revelation, a very popular one that I want to tell you guys about. All right? Now, this was a common belief for a period, all right? But this is not the dominant opinion anymore. Now, I'm saying it's the dominant opinion, but how many of you know that the dominant opinion is not always the right one? All right? So, the next period that it could have been written in is 80, 85 to 90. And the emperor that was ruling at that time is this guy. He looks remarkably similar, but his name is Domitian. Domitian. Mm -hmm. Now, this guy... You got to feel for this guy a little bit, because the problem was, is his dad arose in the chaos that was the Roman M, uh, was Nero's fall. Because again, Nero committed suicide, he didn't have an heir, so Rome had to figure out how to appoint a new emperor overnight. In the chaos of that, uh, Domitian's dad, Vespasian, who is also the one who destroyed the temple, became Roman emperor. Ruled for a little bit, all fine. And then, basically, this guy poured all of his effort into his first son, Titus, to rule after him. So, Vespasian dies, Titus takes over, dies after a year. So, Domitian, who has had no training to be a Roman emperor, has prepared for it all, barely knew how to talk to people, becomes Roman emperor. So, because Domitian didn't know how to talk to people, because he wasn't the friendliest people person, he did what all nerds do and read a lot. And one thing he read a lot of was pagan philosophy. 
So he firmly believed that in order for Rome to be successful, in order for it to be powerful, in order for it to be cool, they needed to believe in paganism. And this Christianity that's on the rise is challenging that. So Vespasian, not Vespasian, Domitian, excuse me. Domitian basically said, all these Christians gotta die immediately, now. So this is when the greatest persecution in Christian's history happens during Domitian's reign. So if Revelation is written during this period, this is what is influencing John to write, all these guys are dying, all this horrible stuff is happening, we gotta be ready for it, because it's only gonna get worse from here, all right? Now, this is the most common dates for Revelation's writing, is later in its life cycle. All right? Everybody following? Okay, good. So, next thing we're gonna move on to, well, one quick thing that I wanna mention just before we end today is everybody and their mom pretty much knows that John wrote Revelation on the island of Patmos while he was exiled, right? Everybody knows that. Now, I told you guys earlier that we have John's bones. Do you guys know that those aren't on Patmos? So if they aren't on Patmos, how did John get off? Now, this source is apocryphal, which I don't expect a lot of people to know what that means, but that basically means we can't verify who wrote it, and it may have been written a couple hundred years after the events actually happened. All right, so take it with a grain of salt, okay? But according to a source called the Acts of John, which basically chronicles his life after the Bible like cuts and ends, you know what I mean? In this supposed document, Domitian sees that John is preaching basically against the Roman Empire. So he says, hey, I don't like you. We gotta talk. So he calls John before him and he tries to make him drink poison. Doesn't do anything. So like maybe something's wrong with the poison. They make another guy drink it, he dies. John raises that guy back to life. <laughs> and then Domitian's like, I'm gonna exile you because apparently I can't kill you. Now, Domitian eventually gets assassinated about 10 years after this. And so the next emperor to rise, Nerva, recalls him, recalls John, basically lets him leave the island. And then while John is sailing, the boat gets shipwrecked. And he grabs a board and swims the rest of the way to Malaysia, which is about 100 miles south of Ephesus. And then he takes a hike up to Ephesus, and that's where he spends the rest of his life. So John's bones and supposedly Mary's bones are buried in Ephesus. Now, the reason I said we think they're in there is because they're entombed and nobody's opened the tomb to take a look if they're in there. So, the important thing here to note is that this event in the Acts of John, which is apocryphal, only happens during Domitian's reign. Because supposedly Domitian is the one who exiles John. So, if this is written during Nero's time, then this source can be thrown out. Doesn't matter. All right? Everybody following? Okay. So when Revelation was written is really up to your personal belief and preference. I'm hooked on something, I think. So I'll lean back here. But basically, when you guys read Revelation, these questions of who wrote it, when, and things like that are meant to strengthen your belief. They're not meant to make you think, okay, um, I can't trust this because I don't know when it was written. It's not like that at all. But one of the ways to view Revelation is through the history that created it. Now, does that mean that Revelation can only be viewed that way? No. 
And I was really hoping we'd have time to go into the different ways to interpret Revelation, but I'm afraid we just don't have that time this session. So next session, we'll look at the various schools of interpretation for Revelation. To give you guys a brief prelude, we have the historicist, we have the preterist, we have the idealist, and we have the futurist. Oh, did Tanisha put it up? She did! Tanisha, you're amazing. So basically what these mean, the preterist basically determines revelation is prophecy for the Protestant Reformation. Basically, all the Antichrist, all the people trying to kill Christians, is the Catholic Church. This one is not followed nearly as much for obvious reasons. The idealist basically says every single word of revelation is symbolic. It doesn't refer to any historical event at all. The historicist says that Revelation is basically the telling of all of history, not just the net, what's upcoming, all of Christian history. All right? And then the futurist is the most common, and it's the one probably everybody here has heard of. It's that Revelation 1 through 3 is dated to John's day, 4 through 22 is for the end times now, basically. All right? All right, so that's all we got time today. So everybody go ahead and stand up. I'll say a brief prayer over you and we'll get out of here. <laughs> Hallelujah, Father. We thank you for coming here into this room tonight, God. We thank you for guiding this teaching, Lord. We thank you for giving us the understanding and the relationship with you to be able to determine what Revelation is about, what it says, when, and why. So Father, I pray for everybody here that as they come and as they go, God, that you bless them, Lord. Guide them further into the depth of your love, Lord, and help them to understand you in an even greater way, God. And pray for their week, that it be blessed and highly favored, and that you move through it. And in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Sandy, South Jordan, West Jordan, or Harriman area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about our fabulous children's and student environments, head over to bridgechurchutah.com or email info at bridgechurchutah.com or you can simply text 801-391-6969. We're looking forward to seeing you soon.